Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our history series is titled The Unsinkable Molly Brown and tells the incredible rags to riches story of the philanthropist, socialite, and Titanic survivor Margaret Tobin Brown, who was born to an Irish immigrant family in Hannibal, Missouri in 1867, was self-educated, worked to establish the first juvenile court in America, became a tireless advocate for human rights, and ran for Senate eight years before women could vote. You can enjoy all our episodes at 1001storiespodcast.com or comment and share our stories at facebook.com slash 1001heroes. Every week is Share Our Show Week. That's how we grow. If you enjoy one of our podcasts, share it with others. Thank you. Margaret Tobin was born in a three-bedroom cottage near the Mississippi River in Hannibal, Missouri, on what is now known as Denkler's Alley. Her parents were Irish Catholic immigrants John Tobin and Johanna Tobin. Her large family was part of a close-knit Irish Catholic community. Her father worked for the Hannibal Gas Works, and Margaret attended her aunt's school, Mary O'Leary's Grammar School. As a teenager, she worked stripping tobacco leaves at Garth's Tobacco Company in Hannibal. At the age of 18, she followed her sister, Mary Ann Tobin Landrigan, and Mary's new husband, Jack Landrigan, to Leadville, Colorado, where they established a blacksmith shop. Margaret shared a cabin with her brother, Daniel Tobin, who worked in the mines and eventually became a successful mine promoter. Margaret, known as Maggie until she married, went to work for Daniels and Fisher Mercantile in Leadville, where she worked in the carpets and draperies department. I longed to be rich enough to give my parents a home so that my father would not have to work, she wrote. I used to think that the zenith of happiness would be to have my father come to his home after a pleasant day and find his slippers warmed and waiting. Father was too tired when his work was done to enjoy any comfort. His life was bounded by working and sleeping. During the early summer of 1886 at a church picnic, she met James Joseph J.J. Brown, a miner whose parents had also immigrated from Ireland. They married September 1, 1886 at the Annunciation Church in Leadville, Colorado, and lived in J.J.'s cabin in Stumptown, a small, primarily Irish community up the hill from Leadville. The Browns had two children, Lawrence Palmer, born in 1887, and Helen, born in 1889. After the birth of Lawrence, the Browns bought a house in Leadville and were eventually joined by members of both their families. Margaret wrote, I thought about how I had determined to stay single until a man presented himself who could give to my father the things I longed for him. Jim was as poor as we were and had no better chance in life. Finally, I decided that I'd be better off with a poor man that I loved. I gave up cooking for my brother and moved to Jim's cabin, where the work was just as hard. While her children were young, Margaret was involved in the early feminist movement in Leadville and the establishment of the Colorado chapter of the National American Women's Suffrage Association. She also worked in soup kitchens to assist families of Leadville miners. When the Sherman Silver Act was repealed in 1893, Leadville was thrust into a deep depression and the unemployment rate was 90%. J.J. Brown, who had become superintendent of all the Ibex mining properties, had an idea. Convinced that the little Johnny Mine might become a producer of gold rather than silver, he devised a timber and hay bale method to hold back the dolomite sand that had prevented them from reaching the gold at the lower depths of the mine. By October 29, 1893, the little Johnny was shipping 135 tons of ore per day, and Brown was awarded 12,500 shares of stock 
and a seat on the board. Over the years, he became one of the most successful and wealthiest mining men in the country. On April 6, 1894, the Browns purchased an 18-room mansion on Pennsylvania Street in Denver for $30,000 and built a summer home of Oka Lodge in the foothills. Carved figures decorated the foyer while the parlor exhibited ornately framed paintings and rare pianoforte. With such a showplace, Maggie was ready to take her place in Denver society. She posted invitations and made preparations for gala soirees. But according to some accounts, Denver's upper crust wanted no part of the nouveau rich, lower-class browns. Maggie had to call in the neighborhood kids to eat the feasts her chef had prepared. But Maggie was nothing if not determined. She hired tutors, read all the best books, and toured Europe numerous times. In time, she became fluent in several languages, was a witty raconteur, and grew to be friends with the Astors, the Vanderbilts, and the Whitneys that she had met on her travels. Margaret also became a founding member of the Denver Women's Club, part of a network of clubs which advocated literacy, education, suffrage, and human rights in Colorado and throughout the United States. She raised funds to build the Cathedral of Immaculate Conception, as well as St. Joseph's Hospital, and worked with Judge Ben Lindsay to help destitute children and establish the first juvenile court in the country, which eventually became the basis for today's U.S. juvenile court system. She also attended the Carnegie Institute in New York, where she studied literature, language, and drama. In addition to raising two children of her own, she raised the three daughters of her brother Daniel, Grace, Florence, and Helen Tobin, whose mother had died when they were young in White Pine, Colorado. In 1909, after 23 years of marriage, J.J. and Molly signed a separation agreement and went their separate ways. The agreement gave Margaret a cash settlement and maintained possession of the Victorian mansion on Pennsylvania Street in Denver's wealthy Capitol Hill neighborhood and also the summer mansion of Oka Lodge in southwest Denver near Bear Creek. She also received 700 a month allowance to continue her travels and philanthropic activities. Although never reconciled, they remained connected and cared for each other throughout their lives. At the time of J.J.'s death in 1922, Margaret told the newspapers, I've never met a finer, bigger, more worthwhile man than J.J. Brown. On July 25, 1914, with Alva Vanderbilt Belmont, she organized an international women's rights conference at Marble House in Newport, Rhode Island, which was attended by human rights activists from around the world. A lifelong advocate of human rights, Margaret was also a prominent figure following the Ludlow Massacre in Trinidad, Colorado in April 1914, a significant landmark in the history of labor rights in the United States. For months, the miners in Ludlow had been on strike against the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company in an effort to gain reprieve from harsh working conditions, extreme hours, and dangerous work atmospheres. The company, part of the Rockefeller conglomerate, refused their demands. Local women wrote to Margaret Brown, pleading for her aid and stating, We heard of your anxiety to do for the men in the Mexican War, and we wanted to tell you of our own men and women of our own war here at home, as reported in the Denver Times. Tensions between striking miners and CF&I came to a head on April 20th when a battle broke out between the miners and private guards hired by the company. Twenty people were killed in the struggle, including several women and children. The tragedy at Ludlow became a national crisis as Americans learned of the horrifying details of one of the most violent labor conflicts in American history. Margaret, who had connections in both the West and the East, went to Ludlow in answer to urgent appeals for help from both sides, each seeing her as an ally. Margaret struggled to maintain a middle ground, 
refusing to join radicals calling for the resignation of the governor, while also challenging Rockefeller on his harsh business practices. As the two sides became further entrenched, Margaret spoke out about minors' rights and pressured Rockefeller with the resulting negative media. Rockefeller eventually softened his stance and agreed to make concessions. The conflict at Ludlow was ultimately resolved and, in many ways, marked the end of the radical wing of the workers' movement in America as the new PR savvy of industrialists like Rockefeller grew more and more effective. After Ludlow, Margaret returned to Colorado less frequently and spent much of her time in a rented summer home in Newport, Rhode Island. Newport was the pinnacle of American high society at the beginning of the 20th century. It was a competitive place where wealthy families displayed their fortunes by building lavish homes and hosting spectacular parties. Newport was the first American town to have a golf course, a tennis club, and the regular use of cars. It was also female-dominated, as the men spent most of their time in New York City doing business, only coming to town for social outings on the weekends. When World War I broke out, Margaret shifted her focus to relief efforts, eventually traveling to France to work for the American Committee for Devastated France. At her departure, a New York reporter noted, If I were requested to personify perpetual activity, I'd believe I'd name Mrs. J.J. Brown the Newport social figure, suffragist, and patriot. Margaret ultimately earned the French Legion of Honor for her activities. By the time Margaret Tobin Brown boarded the Titanic at Cherbourg, France in April of 1914, she had already made a significant impact in the world. She and her daughter Helen, who was a student at the Sorbonne, had been traveling throughout Europe and were staying with the John Jacob Astor Party in Cairo, Egypt, when Margaret received word that her first grandchild, Lawrence Palmer Brown Jr., was ill. She decided to leave for New York immediately and booked passage on the earliest ship, Titanic. At the last minute, Helen decided to stay behind in London. Due to her quick decision, very few people, including family, knew that Margaret was on board the Titanic. To technology-obsessed Americans, the Titanic represented new heights in innovation and achievement. The ship was a wonder of modern science, built by British White Star Lines at a cost of $10 million. The boat weighed 46,000 tons and was 882 feet long. The ship's builders boasted that the ship was practically unsinkable. Although the ship's captain and crew received numerous warnings of ice in the area during their passage, the Titanic charged ahead. Shortly before midnight on April 14, 1912, the Titanic struck ice. One newspaper covered it this way. Sunday night, the magnificent ocean liner was plunging through a comparatively placid sea, on the surface of which there was much mushy ice and here and there a number of comparatively harmless-looking flows. The night was clear and the stars visible. First Officer William T. Murdoch was in charge of the bridge. The first intimation of the presence of the iceberg that he received was from the lookout in the crow's nest. Three warnings were transmitted from the crow's nest of the Titanic to the officer on the doomed steamship's bridge 15 minutes before she struck, according to Thomas Whiteley, a first saloon steward. Whiteley, who was whipped overboard from the ship by a rope while helping to lower a lifeboat, finally reported on the Carpathia aboard one of the boats that contained, he said, both the crow's nest lookouts. He heard a conversation between them, he asserted, in which they discussed the warnings given to the Titanic's bridge of the presence of the iceberg. Whitley did not know the names of either of the lookout men and believed that they returned to England with the majority of the surviving members of the crew. 
I heard one of them say that at 11.15 o'clock, 15 minutes before the Titanic struck, he had reported to First Officer Murdoch on the bridge that he fancied he saw an iceberg. Twice after that, the lookout said, he warned Murdoch that a berg was ahead. They were very indignant that no attention was paid to their warnings. Murdoch's tardy answering of a telephone call from the crow's nest is assigned by Whitley as the cause of the disaster. When Murdoch finally answered the call, he received the information that the iceberg was due ahead. This information was imparted just a few seconds before the crash, and had the officer promptly answered the ring of the bell, it is probable that the accident could have been avoided, or at least been reduced by the lowered speed. The lookout saw a towering blue berg looming up in the sea path of the Titanic and called the bridge on the ship's telephone. When, after passing of those two or three fateful minutes, an officer on the bridge lifted the telephone receiver from its hook to answer the lookout, it was too late. The speeding liner, cleaving a calm sea under a star-studded sky, had reached the floating mountain of ice, which the theoretically unsinkable ship struck a crashing, if glancing, blow with her starboard bow. Had Murdoch, according to the account of the tragedy given by two of the Titanic seamen, known how imperative was that call from the lookout man, the men at the wheel of the liner might have swerved the great ship sufficiently to avoid the berg altogether. At the worst, the vessel would probably have struck the mass of ice with her stern. Murdoch, if the tale of the Titanic sailor be true, expiated his negligence by shooting himself within sight of all alleged victims huddled in lifeboats or struggling in the icy seas. When at last the danger was realized, the great ship was so close upon the berg that it was practically impossible to avoid collision with it. The first officer did what other startled and alert commanders would have done under similar circumstances. That is, he made an effort by going full speed ahead on the starboard propeller and reversing his port propeller, simultaneously throwing his helm over to make a rapid turn and clear the berg. The maneuver was not successful. He succeeded in saving his bowels from crashing into the ice cliff, but nearly the entire length of the underbody of the great ship on the starboard side was ripped. The speed of the Titanic, estimated to be at least 21 knots, was so terrific that the knife-like edge of the iceberg spur protruding under the sea cut through her like a can opener. From end to end on the mighty boat, officers were rushing about without much noise or confusion, but giving orders sharply. Captain Smith told the third officer to rush downstairs and see whether the water was coming in very fast. And, he added, take some armed guards along to see that the stokers and engineers stay at their posts. In two minutes, the officer returned. It looks pretty bad, sir, he said. The water's rushing in and filling the bottom. The locks of the watertight compartments have been sprung by the shock. Then give the command for all passengers to be on deck with life belts on, the captain answered. Through the length and breadth of the boat, upstairs and downstairs, on all decks, the cry rang out. All passengers on deck with life preservers. For the first time, there was a feeling of panic. Husbands sought for wives and children. Families gathered together. Many who were asleep hastily caught up their clothing and rushed on deck. A moment before, the men had been joking about the life belts, according to the story told by Mrs. Vera Dick of Calgary, Canada. Try this one, one man said to her. They are the very latest thing this season. Everybody's wearing them now. Another man suggested to a woman friend who had a fox terrier in her arms that she should put a lifesaver on the dog. It won't fit, the woman replied, laughing. Make him carry it in his mouth, said the friend. 
Below, on the steerage deck, there was intense confusion. About the time the officers on the first deck gave the order that all men should stand to one side and all women should go below to deck B, taking the children with them, a similar order was given to the steerage passengers. The women were ordered to the front, the men to the rear. Half a dozen healthy, husky immigrants pushed their way forward and tried to crowd into the first boat. Stand back, shouted the officers who were manning the boat. The women come first. Shouting curses in various foreign languages, the immigrant men continued their pushing and tugging to climb into the boats. Shots rang out. One big fellow fell over the railing into the water. Another dropped to the deck, moaning. His jaw had been shot away. This was the story told by bystanders afterward on the pier. One husky Italian told the writer on the pier that the way in which the men were shot down was horrible. They were only trying to save their lives, he said. On board the Titanic, the wireless operator with a life belt about his waist was hitting the instrument that was sending out the CQD messages. Struck on iceberg, CQD. Shall I tell Captain to turn back and help, flashed a reply from the Carpathia. Yes, old man, the Titanic wireless operator responded. Guests were sinking. There were heroes that long and tragic night, as these eyewitness testimonies tell, testimonies that were given during the long trial that followed. This one from Mrs. Henry Harris. Captain Smith and Major Archibald Butt, military aide to the President of the United States, were among the coolest men on board. A number of steerage passengers were yelling and screaming and fighting to get to the boats. Officers drew guns and told them that if they moved toward the boats, they'd be shot dead. Major Butt had a gun in his hand and covered the men who tried to get to the boats. The American Army is honored by him and the way he taught some of the other men how to behave when women and children were suffering that awful mental fear of death. Major Butt was near me and I noticed everything that he did. In one of the earlier boats, 50 women, it seemed, were about to be lowered when a man, suddenly panic-stricken, ran to the stern of it. Major Butt shot one arm out, caught him by the back of the neck, and jerked him backward like a pillow. His head cracked against a rail, and he was stunned. Sorry, said Major Butt. Women will be attended to first, or I'll break every damn bone in your body. Colonel Astor was another of the heroes of the awful night. Effort was made to persuade him to take place in one of the lifeboats, but he emphatically refused to do so until every woman and child on board had been provided for, not accepting the women members of the ship's company. One of the passengers describing the consummate courage of Colonel Astor said, He led Mrs. Astor to the side of the ship and helped her to the lifeboat to which she had been assigned. I saw that she was prostrated and said she would remain and take her chances with him. But Colonel Astor quietly insisted and tried to reassure her in a few words. As she took her place in the boat, her eyes were fixed upon him. Colonel Astor smiled, touched his cap, and when the boat moved safely away from the ship's side, he turned back to his place among the men. Mrs. Ida Hippock and her daughter, Jean, survivors of the Titanic, said they were saved by Colonel John Jacob Astor, who forced the crew of the last lifeboat to wait for them. We saw Colonel Astor place Mrs. Astor in a boat and assure her he would follow later, said Mrs. Hippock. He turned to us with a smile and said, Ladies, you're next. The officer in charge of the boat protested that the craft was full and the seamen started to lower it. Colonel Astor exclaimed, Hold that boat, in the voice of a man accustomed to be obeyed, and they did as he ordered. The boat had been lowered past the upper deck, and the colonel took us to the deck below and put us in the boat, one after the other, through a porthole. Margaret described her experience in the Newport Herald. I stretched on the brass bed at the side of which was a lamp. 
So completely absorbed in my reading, I gave little thought to the crash that struck at my window overhead and threw me to the floor. After the crash, Margaret heard increasing confusion in the hall, causing her to investigate further. I again looked out and saw a man whose face was blanched, his eyes protruding, wearing the look of a haunted creature. He was gasping for breath, and in an undertone he gasped, Get your lifesaver! After helping fellow passengers, she was taken a hold of and with the words, You are going to, was dropped four feet into the lowering lifeboat, number six. She and the other women in lifeboat six worked together to row, keep spirits up, and dispel the gloom that was broadcast by the emotional and unstable boatmate Robert Hitchens. Scenes on the sinking vessel grew more tragic as the remaining passengers faced the awful certainty that death must be the portion of the majority. Death in the darkness of a wintry sea, studded with ice monuments like the marble shafts in some vast cemetery. In that hour, when cherished illusions of possible safety had all but vanished, manhood and womanhood aboard the Titanic rose to their sublimest heights. It was in that crisis of direst extremity that many brave women deliberately rejected life and chose rather to remain and die with the men whom they loved. I will not leave my husband, said Mrs. Isidore Strauss. We are old. We can best die together. And she turned from those who would have forced her into one of the boats and clung to the man who had been the partner of her joys and sorrows. Thus they stood hand in hand and heart to heart, comforting each other until the sea claimed them, united in death as they had been through a long life. Miss Elizabeth Evans fulfilled this final test of affection laid down by the Divine Master. She was placed in the same boat with many other women. As it was about to be lowered away, it was found that the craft contained one more than its full quota of passengers. The grim question arose as to which of them should surrender her place and her chance of safety. Beside Miss Evans sat Mrs. J.J. Brown of Denver, the mother of several children. Miss Evans was the first to volunteer to yield to another. Maggie Brown was the second. Your need is greater than mine, said she to Mrs. Brown. You have children who need you, and I have none. So saying, she arose from the boat and stepped back upon the deck. The girl found no later refuge and was one of those who went down with the ship. She was 25 years old and was beloved by all who knew her. Mrs. Brown thereafter showed the spirit which had made her also volunteer to leave the boat. There were only three men in the boat, but one of them rowed. Mrs. Brown, who was raised on the water, immediately picked up one of the heavy sweeps and began to pull. At 4.30 a.m., Margaret saw a flash of light. It was from the approaching ship Carpathia, which was the first to answer the distress call. After some difficulty, lifeboat six pulled up alongside the Carpathia, and the occupants were pulled aboard, one at a time. Margaret, though sore, tired, and cold, began to take action. Her knowledge of foreign languages enabled her to console survivors who spoke little English. She also rifled through the ship to find extra blankets and supplies to distribute to women who were sleeping in the dining room and corridors. Margaret realized that many women had lost everything, husbands, children, clothes, money, and valuables, and needed to start a life in a new country. She rallied the first-class passengers to donate money to help less fortunate passengers. Before the Carpathia reached New York, $10,000 had been raised. Margaret's language skills in French, German, and Russian were an asset, and she remained on the Carpathia until all Titanic survivors had met with friends, family, or medical emergency assistance. In a letter to her daughter shortly after the Titanic sinking, she wrote, After being brined, salted, and pickled in mid-ocean, I am now high and dry. I've had flowers, letters, telegrams, people until I'm befuddled. 
They are petitioning Congress to give me a medal. If I must call a specialist to examine my head, it is due to the title of heroine of the Titanic. Her sense of humor prevailed. To her attorney in Denver, she wired, Thanks for the kind thoughts. Water was fine and swimming good. Neptune was exceedingly kind to me, and I am now high and dry. Long after the incident, as chair of the Survivors Committee, Margaret presented a silver loving cup to Captain Rostron of the Carpathia and a medal to each Carpathia crew member. In later years, Margaret helped erect the Titanic Memorial that stands in Washington, D.C. She visited the cemetery in Halifax, Nova Scotia to place wreaths on the graves of victims and continued to serve on the Survivors Committee. She was particularly upset that, as a woman, she was not allowed to testify at the Titanic hearings. In response, she wrote her own version of the event, which was published in newspapers in Denver, New York, and Paris. Legend claims that Margaret, stepping off the Carpathia onto the safe shore of New York, boldly exclaimed, Typical brown luck, I'm unsinkable. A second source as to the moniker, the unsinkable Molly Brown, suggests that the name was a Hollywood invention. The story began in the 1930s with the colorful pen of Denver Post reporter Gene Fowler, who created a folktale, and sensationalist writer Carolyn Bancroft, who wrote a highly fictional account for a romance magazine that was turned into a booklet. This story enjoyed various radio broadcasts during the 1940s and was the basis for the Broadway play The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which eventually became the MGM movie of the same name, starring Debbie Reynolds. Even James Cameron's 1997 film Titanic has very little to do with the real story of Margaret Tobin Brown. After attempting to mitigate or correct the legend of Molly, the Brown family eventually withdrew from the public and refused to speak with writers, reporters, or historians. Only recently have they agreed to cooperate with the efforts of a historian, Kristen Iverson, and allowed access to letters, scrapbooks, photographs, and many personal effects of Margaret Tobin Brown that had previously been unavailable. The first full-length biography of Margaret Tobin Brown was published in June 1999 by Kristen Everson. Legend aside, after the Titanic, Margaret used her new fame as a platform to talk about issues that deeply concerned her, labor rights, women's rights, education and literacy for children, and historic preservation. During World War I, she worked with the American Committee for Devastated France to help rebuild the areas behind the front line and worked with wounded French and American soldiers. The Chateau Blancourt, a French-American museum outside of Paris, has a commemorative plaque that bears her name. A few interesting notes. In the movie The Unsinkable Molly Brown, Debbie Reynolds, who played the role of Molly, in real life Maggie Brown, hides $300,000 in a wood stove and accidentally burns it later. Regarding an interview with the great-granddaughter of Maggie Brown, reporter Juliana Goodwin writes, In Hollywood, she's been portrayed by Debbie Reynolds and Kathy Bates as a feisty, boisterous country girl from Missouri. In real life, the unsinkable Molly Brown was never even Molly. Her name was Margaret, said Helen Benzinger, Brown's great-granddaughter. That was all Hollywood. The unsinkable Margaret Brown just doesn't have the same ring. That movie, everything in there, had just enough fact to make it kind of true, said Benzinger. If you've seen the Debbie Reynolds movie, you probably remember the scene where Molly accidentally burns $300,000 in the stove, not knowing her husband hid money in there. In real life, it was actually $75 in silver. But there are more important details that Benzinger wants people to know about Brown. I want them to know her heart. I want them to know that she was the kind of woman who put everyone else first. 
Not many people know when she was on the Carpathia, she didn't leave until every survivor had some money, clothes on their back, and could get to their embassy, she said. Brown was well-traveled and spoke five languages, said Benzinger. On Carpathia, she was a translator for Titanic escapees. She took on a leadership role and raised $10,000 from first-class passengers for other survivors before the Carpathia even reached land. Brown continued to raise money of dollars for the survivors long after. In World War I, my great-grandmother risked her life and took a ship across the Atlantic stocked with ambulances and books in Braille because mustard gas was blinding the soldiers. She was awarded the French Legion of Honor, the highest honor in France. In America, she's credited with helping minors expose horrible working conditions, was an avid feminist, and active in the National Women's Suffrage Association. She also put a bid in for the U.S. Senate seat in Colorado before women had even been granted the right to vote in this country. That feminism carried over on the Titanic. Brown did not think women should have been given preferential treatment in evacuation. Afterwards, she got upset with the women's movement because she said, if you want the same rights as these guys, stay up there. She thought it was a crime that older women got off and thought younger men should have gotten off the ship with their young wives and families, Benzinger said, added that Brown was physically put on a lifeboat. Otherwise, she wouldn't have evacuated. While her great-grandmother was a fascinated woman, she did not realize they were related until the unsinkable Molly Brown was released. Benzinger sat in a movie theater with her mother, and when Debbie Reynolds started kicking up her heels dancing, Benzinger's mom leaned over and said, By the way, that's your great-grandmother. I thought, How cool is this? she said. As she grew older, Benzinger read everything else she could on her great-grandmother and now wants to share the real Margaret Brown's legacy, which is why she loaned all the materials her family had on file, on display for the first time, to the Titanic Museum attraction. J.J. Brown died September 5, 1922, in New York, after suffering a series of heart attacks at a hospital in Nassau, with his daughter, Catherine, Mrs. George Benzinger, by his side. He died without a will, and it took five years of fighting between Margaret and her two children to settle the estate. Due to their lavish spending, J.J. left an estate valued at only $238,000. Margaret was to receive 20000 in cash and securities and the interest on a $100,000 trust fund set up in her name. Margaret Tobin Brown died of a brain tumor on October 26, 1932 at the Barbizon Hotel in New York where she had been working with young actresses. After a simple funeral service, Maggie was buried next to J.J. in Hollywood. Their daughter, Helen Benzinger, died in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, October 17, 1993, at the age of 97. A legend and a force for good, Margaret Tobin Brown left her footprint in history in a way that few people can. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at 1001storiespodcast.com or chime in with a message at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. This episode was brought to you commercial free by our supporters at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash 1001heroes who donate as little as $1 a month. 
the cost of a few postage stamps, because they appreciate the hard work and passion that goes into providing these stories. Only a small percentage of the people who listen to our show actually give. If all our listeners took a minute and pledged $1 a month, we could do this full-time and bring you two shows a week. Thanks for listening.